Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here as usual. This week's episode is another live episode uh, that we recorded at the Podcast Social Festival, part of the Deer Shed Festival in Thirsk uh, towards the end of last year. It's a sort of uh, storytelling special and a a love letter to books in many ways. Uh, I mean, every week is. But this one especially is that uh, Robin is joined by Charles Fernihoe and Laura Kidd, who you might better know as She Makes War. Before we get to that, an announcement about some uh, more live shows, live podcasts like Book Shambles and Science Shambles we've got coming up. We're going to be at the National Maritime Museum in March and April doing some live podcasts there on a Sunday afternoon. So go to the National Maritime Museum website for details, also on the Cosmic Shambles website, obviously. Uh, That ties into Sea Shambles at the Royal Albert Hall on May 17. Lots of science and comedy and music and poetry and lasers and all sorts of stuff at that. May 17, Royal Albert Hall. Check out their website for tickets. Robin, Helen Chersky, Lim Cizé, Josie Long, Steve Backshaw, British Sea Power, lots of other people as well. Tickets for that on sale now. Thanks, as always, go to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show. Uh, Without your pledges, we can't afford to pay for the studio and the hosting and everything else that goes along with producing this podcast. So if you do enjoy it uh, and you've got a spare dollar a month, that is as little as you can contribute, go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to show your support in a financial way. Enough of that. Let's go to this week's episode. Here's Robin and Laura and Charles. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to uh, a book shambles recorded at midday. And uh, here, it's the first time I've been to Thirsk. I like that cinema. That looks like a good cinema, the Ritz Cinema. Um, this is uh, it's quite a weird way. We never normally record book shambles like this. Book shambles, uh, Josie Long unfortunately couldn't uh, make it uh, because uh, she's got so many other things in her life, and uh, which is great. And we're going to do a conversation. I'll give you a kind of preamble of what's going on. I, I've no idea what you're expecting, and I don't know what I'm expecting of me. So we're in a very much a similar situation. We'll talk about lots of things, but we'll start off now with a, uh, an, an introduction. So welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie, as I said, is not here, but I'm joined by uh, two guests. I'm joined by Charles Fernahoe, who has previously been on this show with uh, Sophie Scott, um, where we were talking more about kind of uh, in, in, inner monologues and inner thoughts and the carapace which we sometimes place around us. Uh, and, and babies. How all that stuff gets going, how, how children learn to think in words and so on. Well, you, you wrote a fantastic book where you basically, proper, uh, I, I, I know you're, you're primarily a philosopher, but proper science, where once you had a child, you went, I will observe my daughter for the first three years, and then I shall collate the evidence. Yeah, she still hasn't been paid. I'm actually a psychologist <laughs> uh, by background, and my background was in, in developmental psychology, so I did that stuff for a living, you know, thinking about how Babies develop, how young children start to use words to help themselves to think. So when my daughter Athena came along, um, it was a great opportunity to spend some time at home with her to watch her in, in great detail and write things down um, and respond to her as a writer as well as a psychologist, but of course primarily as a dad. Because that's what Charles Darwin did that, didn't he? He was, very, he, was, he was very loving to his children, but he would just think, I'm just going to observe, because there's some horrible experiments on, on children in the first part of the 20th century. There's the, the, the baby who uh, was made to be scared of clowns and fire, and I, I forget, the, the 1920s. Uh, that's the little Albert. Yeah, sorry. little yeah, Albert. Yeah. yeah, Darwin loved his son so much that he decided to call him Doddy. And it, was a, <laughs> it was a kind of pet name for some, I can't remember the exact... William or something, but anyway, it's, it's Charles and Doddy who, who made it into the uh, developmental psychology literature, and that really was the first bit of developmental psychology. We often point to that and say that's the first time anybody really took seriously what's going on in a small child's head. 
because I love one of my favourite stories of Charles Darwin's children was uh, when because he did so much work uh, with kind of uh, with, with with limpets and barnacles uh, that they eventually believed that every single parent because you know in in your when when you're being brought up whatever reality you live in you think is the reality for everyone so every single day pretty much the postman would arrive with another box of barnacles from around the world <laughs> and then Charles Darwin would go out and he'd play with his, his his kids and stuff and he was you know very very active. And, with the, and then he'd go back and he'd study his barnacles and then he'd go out. And then one day, uh, one of his children went to someone else's house and uh, started looking around the house and got increasingly confused. And eventually they, they went, well, what's, what's the matter? And they went, but, but where does your father do his barnacles? And it was the <laughs> fact that they went, not all fathers do barnacles. And, and uh, tremendously... D- disrupted and, and saddened by that we're also joined by uh laura kidd aka she makes war uh aka to be announced because uh <laughs> she will also be doing but, she, but um and, and laura we've been talking a lot because we're touring together at the moment about i mean you you've uh, the the albums you produced is she makes war about the communication of stories mm. about the fact that you know while i've been working with you quite often after gigs someone comes up to you and they say this album really helped me and that seems to me, when you sit down and when you start, when you're creating new music mm-hmm. and new songs, how active is it in your head about that sense that this doesn't just have to be a ditty, this has to have a sense of communication? I don't think I could write a ditty, and that is why I'm not more well-known, <laughs> I think. But that's fine, because when people come up to me after shows and go, oh, your songs are about actual things, I just go, well, yeah, well, I don't know what... They could. I don't know why they wouldn't be, really. To me, it's completely natural. I'm not sitting there thinking, what can I poetically communicate to the masses to help them through their sad times? I'm just going, oh, I, f- I felt this, and this is how I want to explain that. And then, I don't know, it just, it, I'm sorry, there's not a, a magic way of doing it, but I d- it just comes out that way, and it's just lovely when people respond well to it. It's really good. That's what, what interests me is with certain songs, I wonder, when, when I, I, I wrote the book that I wrote most recently, I'm, I'm a joke and so are you, you know, there's a bit where even though I'm dealing with a lot of different people's situations and I t- spoke to a lot of different people and a lot of different psychologists and, 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 and therapists, what I found interesting was when different people come up to me, sometimes I'm just in a shop or whatever and someone will say, I read your book and, and what connects, sometimes what we can think is, I mean, I think in stand-up this happens a lot. You go on stage and you think, I wonder if this is only my story. I wonder when I do this particular observational joke about my mental states, whether the whole audience go, no, none of us. <laughs> and um, Charles, you, you've, you've edited what is undoubtedly one of my books of the year, because I think it's a fantastic book. And from the moment that I saw that when, when you were kind of, you know, raising the funds for it, and it, um, uh, the book is Others. And I'll just ask you to, what, this is a collection of many people, it's poetry, it's non-fiction, it's fiction, it's the power of the story. Can you tell me a little bit about why you put together others and, and, and what the kind of idea behind it was? It's been a grim few years um, since the rise of Trump, since the incredibly divisive referendum uh, around Brexit. And I think many of us have been feeling this sense of frustration and anger and outrage at some of the things that have been going on. In you know, the way in which everything from Trump's populism to the rhetoric around Brexit and um, European nationalism has been used to justify hatred and intolerance towards others. And one consequence of that has been a shocking rise in hate crime. I mean, the the way hate crime is reported has changed over the years. So the figures are slightly inflated by the fact that people are noticing it more and people are reporting it more. But the figures have doubled. They've more than doubled since the records um, from 2012, 2013. They're going up. So this year they went up about another 10%. It is increasing. It is also particularly, it seems, responsive to terrible things that happen, terrorist attacks and so on. People's anger seems to be turning towards others, and this really was one of the things that worried me the most. And I had this feeling, as I'm sure you had and I'm sure many of us have had, of wanting to do something, of wanting to try and find an answer. And I could see people were trying to do things. They were... You know, apart from political activism, they were trying to counter the... A flow of vitriol in the online conversation and they were doing other great intellectual and creative and artistic works and I thought well what can I do well I can't 
I can't do much, really, except organize large bodies of text. Um, that's one thing I can, I can, I do know my way around is a big Word document. Um, so I thought, I'm also, I've been a professional writer for 20 years, and I know lots of people. I've been really fortunate to do gigs like this with some really brilliant writers. So I thought, can I get some of these writers, many of whom I know share my sense of outrage, can I get them together? Can I get them to help me to think about something that literature does? Because people were saying through those years, and these, those years sadly are still with us, they were saying books matter. Books matter more than ever. And I kind of knew that was right. I felt that was true. But I wanted to know why they mattered. I wanted to know what it is that books give us. It's too, it was too easy just to say, oh, we should read books. We should read more books and we'll become better people. Well, I think that probably is true, but I'm interested to know why that's the case. What do books give us? And I had a sense that an answer or one answer to the problems we were facing was right under our noses in things like this and the books that we read. And the hunch was that what books do for us is not just show ourselves back at ourselves. You know, they don't just act as a mirror for our own beliefs and values and prejudices and all the rest of it. They can do that, but they can do something much more important. They can take us out of ourselves. They can show us other people's points of view. They can show us walks of life. They can show us uh, perspectives. They can show us feelings that we can't possibly know, that we could never know, that we weren't even alive to have experienced, possibly, or we don't live anywhere near where we could have experienced those things. That's one thing books can do, and I thought, I, I feel that. I want to find some writers who can help me to celebrate that magical thing that literature does. So I started you know, getting on the phone and you know, tapping out the emails and so on, and asked as many people as I could think of who I felt would, would be great contributors to help me to do this thing. And we decided that all the proceeds would go to charity. Nobody would make any money out of it. Um, most of the contributors waived the pitiful fee we were offering them. Um, and we did it with Unbound, partly because we felt this would help to create a kind of crowdfunded community for the book already, you know, before the book's even published. And create, so try to bring people together who are the readers as well as the, the writers. Plus, the Unbound publishing model means that more of the money that we raised could go to the good causes. And the good causes are two really important charities who, are, who have been incredibly helpful and, and close to my heart. One is Stop Hate UK, who work with police forces uh, and other organisations to help hate crime to be reported, to make it easier to report hate crime. And the other is Refugee Action, who work with refugees and their families um, in the UK to help to support them and provide advice and so on. So, so the money is going towards those, is going to those charities. Um, and the collection is, well, I, I think you'll agree, it's a rather diverse collection. We've got a very diverse group of writers. Sorry, I probably interrupted you in a previous podcast, and I'm going to interrupt you again. Be sure to check out everything else going on at CosmicShambles.com. We've got other podcasts, such as Science Shambles, where myself and Helen Chersky chat to all sorts of brilliant scientists about their current work, and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England tackling questions about the brain. Exclusive blogs from top science writers like John Butterworth, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, Ginny Smith and others. Videos, documentaries and lots of live events. The Cosmic Shambles Network is the place for people who are curious about the universe and everything it contains and things that might also, it doesn't contain, but we're just kind of mucking about with those ideas. You know, all of that stuff. Laura, what, when you were growing up, what were the stories that you first, you know, that moment when you're starting to work out who you are and, and how you fit in or how you don't fit in? Do you remember the, 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 the stories, whether it was film, television, books, whatever it was that you thought, ah, I'm beginning to see something which reflects what's going on in there? Hmm. I, just, I just dove into books as a kid because I, I, um, my, my dad was in the RAF and we, we moved every three years. And it was terrible, and I got bullied at every school for something different, and it was just, yeah, horrible. And especially when it's not your choice to move. And I know it all made me who I am today. I'm very adaptable. I can walk into a room and not be scared and all that kind of stuff. I can, it's good for this job, or maybe this job happened because of that. Who knows? But at the time, it was pretty, pretty bad. So I would just read all the time, and I'd just read. And it was mostly adventure stories for boys, actually, funnily enough. Um, when I was really little... Um, I was just a very precocious reader, so my, my parents definitely gave me that. When I was very young, they taught me to read, maybe three or something. And when I went to school, 
the teachers thought I was just turning the pages and I got in trouble for just turning the pages and not reading and then my dad had to go to school and tell them off and and all this and then I got given a, a sort of free pass to go to the to the bigger library for the bigger kids and I just got piles and piles of books and it was just those this, the escape the, the escapism of it that massive inner life that we all have was so enriched by all these books I was reading and it was it was definitely escape and some kind of solace from everything that's happening in real life and the lack of choices you have as a child. Couldn't choose where I lived, couldn't choose what people said about me or to me or balls thrown at my head and whatever horrible things happened. And so that was, that was my escape. And I think it's interesting you say about what, what do books do. And it's definitely that thing, for me, it's definitely that thing of learning someone else's perspective and then also reflecting on that. So it's comparing that to my experience and trying to grow. And I think just the way it can shape your mind and it was quite recently I realized that I wasn't reading anymore I was just doing doing that a lot and I'm, I'm for the people listening I'm scrolling on my hand uh, and 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 I was thinking I really took a step back and thought I, my mind is currently being shaped by other people's garbage thoughts that they're not <laughs> they wouldn't even say this thing Facebook mostly to their nearest and dearest person because they'd be like so what? Why are you telling me about your bin or your whatever? So I just thought, literally garbage thoughts. I thought, that is not how I want my brain to be shaped. And so I dove right back into reading and I've read something like 25 books this year and I feel so much better. And it's that thing of... Also, I think um, what books can do is that long-form piece of reading. It's almost like... It feels like my mind that's in all these horrible little fragments from all this dopamine release nonsense is getting smoothed out by this long form reading thing it's, it's wonderful I've had a great year and I've started using some of them some of the books I've been reading in my new songs for my new project so there's a book called Flight Behaviour which is incredible and I've kind of very heavily influenced by that in one of the songs I've written so it's all encompassing now. It's, it's interesting you mentioned about you having to travel around a lot as a child because that was one of the first things I, when I was putting together uh, working out sometimes because of course we don't know why we become who we become it's an, and, and one of the things that I find fascinating in terms of storytelling and the stories in our life as well is very often the further away we get from the incidents the sharper they come into focus and, we, and you know sometimes you might be as old as me you might be 50 years old when you go oh that's one of the main reasons I'm what I am you know and that, and that is to me of kind of the fascinating thing and, and the traveling around uh, when I was talking to a lot of different kind of artists about why you know what happened in, in, their, in their childhood if there was anything that kind of and a lot of people military backgrounds or other forms of traveling background which means that every every two years you go to a new school mm -hmm. and you go I have to become someone new mm -hmm. and so that level of creativity seems to be inspired by that kind of experience and it's stuff like your toys aren't there anymore so my parents said that they put a load of stuff into storage I will never forget when I returned to England from living in Cyprus for three years I must have been 13 I was told that Jimmy the giraffe was waiting for me but they told me when I was little they just threw him away Jimmy the giraffe I, I think it was a dog toy actually but it was so it was my guy I'll never forget Jimmy. Every time you watch Laura singing, realise behind it is Jimmy. a ghost giraffe the whole time. That is where, if that giraffe had not been thrown away, we would not have albums of such excellence. Exactly. I thank your parents <laughs> for their cruelty. <laughs> it has helped art a great deal. Joel, sorry, you were going to... Uh, yeah, just a couple of points on that. I mean, one is, I don't think it is unique to literature, this ability to take us into other worlds as your work is, is, you know, demonstrates so, so beautifully. It's just that literature was the thing I knew, mm. I knew best. So I don't think it's unique to, to literature as a form. Um, and the other thing is it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea that literature can do this thing. It just seemed to me particularly timely to say we need something as a, as a species now. We need something to reduce our anger. We need something to salve our hearts. Uh, and let's celebrate this magical thing that books can do. It's it, what I find sometimes I think in terms of that. I, I mean, in fact, when you mentioned children, it just reminded me of when, when I do gigs and there are sometimes teenagers in there, sometimes slightly younger as well. One of my favourite things, I realised things were going right when every now and again a 12-year-old would turn up to a gig with a note from their mum saying they had permission to come to the arts centre <laughs> despite the fact it said over 16s only or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I realised quite often that those kids are the same kid that I was to an extent. And that moment of being a kind of, you know, an old man doing weird, you know, when I've had people come up to go, I didn't know you could actually do that for a living just doing stupid voices and saying anything that came into your head. And here's another thing I found out from Brian Cox, which is fascinating. 
fascinating. Here's my impression of Brian Blessed. You know, all of that kind of thing <laughs> is uh, that I, I realise that that in itself, be, being what apparently appears to be insane on stage, can be quite useful for people. Where I get so many people come up to me and go, I didn't realise other people. That's how my brain works too. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting thing, which again is is um, the, Philippa Perry said this uh, the great thing uh, where she said the problem with being human is we judge everyone else from their exterior and everyone uh, and ourselves from our interior so this is the bit the, the disparity between the two everyone here will have had an experience where you've gone to a party and you've got uh, just gone oh my god everyone else is having a great time everyone's having such a great time and I'm not I'm so nervous I can't think of what to say and but actually you know you're not just standing there at the party going ah, ah, ah. you're kind of doing jokes and you're having a little bit of a drink and uh, to outside observers they're thinking Laura's having a great time isn't she I wish I yeah, was having yeah. a great time you know, and so that to me is an in, you know that bit of once you start chipping away and you have those moments where people can start that conversation it's well, showing vulnerability and also I think it's a lot to do it's not it's sometimes it's for, especially with music it's not so much about the content of the song either it's I think it's a container that's why I've started thinking about my songs they're a container of time where I get to put all of my thoughts and feelings into it and and whatever have that that sort of release myself but the listener doesn't know what it's literally about and even if I told them they might they'll take something else from it but that three minutes and 20 whatever they get to feel stuff that's triggered by that song so especially live I, I see it so people come into a room and I feel like I've, I've got this idea of sending out a force field or like a, a safe bubble and if anyone wants to come and stand in that safe bubble force field thing they're very welcome and if not at least please don't talk all the way through it you know um, that that happens, and then I feel like that they basically they've come to feel their feelings. Tell me if I'm wrong. So if anyone here goes to see music, are you going so you can go? I wonder what Laura feels about this thing. Or are you going because you want to feel your whole history and your you know your inner life is enriched by this thing? I see two people nodding. Am I right? Okay. It took me ages to realise that. So I feel like I'm just getting started with my career now because I'm, I, these things don't become obvious until you really think and I think you know, reading helps with that uh, you know, turning off the phone helps with having time to realise why we're doing what we're doing so making things much more intentional which is what art is about I think there's another point to make about, about this and it certainly was on my mind when I was putting others together um, it goes two ways you know, it's not just about us saying hey look at those people over there they're different to us but look we can through the magic of, of, of the word we can reveal their lives to you that's a bit of what we're doing. But in a way, the most interesting thing is turning it around and saying, how can this process of sitting down with a book and hearing these words resound in your head, how can that reveal something of the strangeness of myself, of the way that I am different to others? You know, you see, I see you as other, and you see me as other. And literature, literature can help us to do that as well. And that's what we need to be able to do. We need to be able to show that, to understand that we are the others to others and find a way to to understand and be a bit more forgiving of, of both sides in that, in that respect. I think it's all so easy, and I'm, I can't wait to read your book because it sounds brilliant, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I've been driving Robin around for three weeks. That's why I haven't read it yet. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think that's true. Um, I think it's so interesting because it's easy um, as a relatively privileged uh, white person to go oh yeah I would never I would never be horrible to anyone else and I I'm you know I'm not racist I'm not transphobic I'm not and you know any of these things but be very lazy about it so I think I've been guilty of that as um, probably many of us have just going yeah but I'm a good person so I'm not part of this problem but then reading about it and really getting into people's experiences makes a massive change in the brain and, and it makes you want to be more makes me want to be more actively an ally to these others you know I think it's really important. So that, that book will help a lot, I think. You, you mentioned the brain, which is, which is nice because it kind of connects to, to my day job. And I'm a bit wary about sort of saying that this experience can you know, rewire your brain. And there's, there's all sorts of stuff spoken about how reading books can actually make your brain sort of function differently. And those findings haven't actually been particularly well replicated. But my main concern, actually, is that we start talking about the brain as if it was the ultimate arbiter of truth, and that there is a hierarchy of truth, and that if you can prove something in a psychology experiment, you're, well, yeah, okay, meh. But if you can prove something happening in the brain, then that's really true. And that, I really re resist that. I find that really problematic and dangerous for our, for our thinking. But the reason I mention the brain is that there is some good social psychology, 
about how when you encounter a group of people who are not like you in some way, and it might be to do with, to, to do with race or sexuality or, what, or whatever, um, just encountering them reduces levels of prejudice towards them. I mean, that's a no-brainer. It's kind of obvious. If you get to meet some of the people that you're prejudiced about, then you're going to be less prejudiced about them. The interesting finding is that you don't actually have to encounter them. You don't actually have to meet them in real life. Simply imagining encountering them also reduces the levels of, those of, of prejudice. And that's been you know, shown in, 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 in a few uh, scientific studies. But my question then is, how do we do that imagining? This is what helps us mm. to imagine. This is the grist to the mill and other art forms as well. But this is the grist to the mill that allows us to imagine, that, that gives a spur to our imagination, that helps us to think about a life we could never possibly have lived, uh, in a place we could never possibly have visited, a place that doesn't even exist or that existed hundreds of years ago or, or whatever. It, it gives us the stimulus to our imagination that we desperately need. What I like is it also gives me an excuse not to go out of the house because I like staying in more often. I don't really like comments. So, so why don't you go out and socialise more? I'm imagining socialising <laughs> with a very gregarious group of people. That's what I do. I mean, I do find with books, I love books so much and I really do, you know, I can't stop myself and I buy it. And I do find that every book is potential. That's what I find. Every book that I buy, whether it's a charity shop, you know, an independent bookshop, whatever it is, each one I go, oh, there's going to be a story in there and it might be, it's going to do something in my brain. That's what I think about all art when I go around art galleries. And, and some days, like there was one time I was going around the Herbert Gallery, which is in, in, in Coventry, which is just a kind of normal municipal gallery with a mixture of kind of taxidermy and, you know, spearheads and gravel that's been found in place of historical interest, clips of Joan Collins in a Lady Godiva film. And then it's also got, you know, a selection of paintings. And as usual, you know, most of it was like kind of, nah, nah, and then, then you know, but I was still, I knew there'd be something. And I got to the, 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 the final painting was by Stanley Spencer, who's one of my favourite painters. It was the last painting I saw, and, and it's called, uh, as far as I remember, uh, Miss Ashwanden, I think is the, is the, the, the correct. And it's um, just of this, this teenager, late teens, and she sat in, you can see Cookham behind Cookham, which of course was his legendary place, both the real place that he, that he lived, but he also made it mythic. He had things like, you know, Christ peach, preaching at Cookham Regatta, and he had uh, the uh, resurrection occurring uh, at the Cookham churchyard. But this, this one is just a, a, a girl sat in an armchair, Cookham behind her. She looks like she's cut her own hair as well. And it was very interesting. It was like his final painting. And then I found out the story of the painting, which was uh, she was also dying. She was a, a, a teenager who was dying, and her parents said, would you paint our daughter? And he was an old man who knew he was dying as well. And looking at that painting and thinking of those eyes as they met, and her, who you know, imagine the embarrassment. You're 17, 18 years old, and there's this guy who's known as being a bit of a weirdo in the area, and he's painting you, and you can, each time you look at the painting, you see a different detail, like you see how much one of her thumbnails is digging into her thumb as well, all the little things he's picked up. And that painting, just that one moment, the, the level of revelation, the level of being lost in that, and then the journey and the fact that it sticks in, I can see it behind, even though it's an ugly picture of me actually behind us uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, actually what I'm seeing behind me is, is I'm seeing that picture. And that took me into so many different places. And that's what I think I try with, with all different forms of art. I hope that it does change me just a little bit. And that, that doesn't put a tremendous weight on it either. Create what you create. Mm. And then it's like, like going to a Nick Cave concert now. And I think Nick Cave, you know, when he, was, when he was saying about when you first start working as an artist, when Nick Cave was mainly taking heroin in, you know, in Berlin and doing some of those kind of very strange and dark and wonderful albums from the 80s, you know, he would not have imagined, I don't think, the person who communicates now to an arena full of people who when I've gone to see him you see them pogoing and then you see them in tears and then you see people pogoing while they're in tears and all of those different journeys you know that are going on I don't think the 22 year old Nick Cave would have seen the 60 year old Nick Cave doing that no that's the funny thing as well I mean I'm people don't pogo at my gigs unfortunately but that's okay I, I do. Be. do you and you tell me to stop <laughs> you say it's ruining the atmosphere that is true all of this is true um, yeah, I think that when, in terms of music making for me, um, I just wanted to make my songs and put them out and then the rest of it was a mystery to me. And then having done it for 10 years and the reason I'm, um, AKA whatever, the other things you're saying, I'm launching a new project next year because it just feels like 
I've learned so much in this 10 years. It's kind of like when you do an exam and you wish you'd done it in five years' time, you could have done it really well. <laughs> so I want to take everything I've learned and just be a lot more intentional about what I'm doing um, and just continually improve, I think, and, and, and hopefully offer songs to a community of people who they will resonate with and that they will change in that, that same way. But without, hopefully, um, as I say, without a trace of ego, that's not possible, is it? Because we've all got, all got microphones. But without that egotistical thing of, and they will think I'm amazing. That's not what it's about. It's about those sharing those true stories. And you know, your book, Charles, could have been, here's all the reasons you shouldn't be horrible to people with dwarfism, blah, blah, blah. And that is not the way to, to change people. That's what, how stories are so powerful. Hey, I was pondering this in, on the drive down this morning in the, in the driving rain. Um, <laughs> the, something very special about art is the way it deals with a perspective. The way that you as an artist have to respect a point of view. And I write fiction as well as non-fiction, and I'm currently writing a historical novel sequence and I'm dealing with people who if they did live I mean, some of them are real characters and some are made up but if they did live they lived 860 years ago but I still feel that I have a duty to respect their point of view I have duty to do my utmost to get inside their mind and to be honest about it and to be respectful of what I find there and I think in in fiction and I think it probably applies to all art forms to the Spencer painting you just described as well, if you don't respect that point of view, the point of view that you're trying to get across, then you won't even get off the ground. That's, that novel won't work, people won't be interested, you won't take the reader with you. And that respecting of experience is something that perhaps can carry across from our reading into the world. Wouldn't it be nice if we just respected other people's points of view a bit more? I think, I, I don't know if I get it right or not, but I do find that most of the artists that I'm drawn to are the ones where I genuinely, I, I think it really, it, it, you know, sometimes you pick up a book and you think, this is a person who's written this book going, this will make a great film and it will make me a lot of money, right? And every now and again you read a certain book and you think, I don't believe this book and I don't believe in the honesty of the, of, 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 of the writer. I think they've written something where, where and, and I can understand why you would do that as well. I mean, that's, you know, it's the same in comedy, it's the same in everything. Some people think, how can I make the most amount of money? What's the, and other people go, well, I'll make less money but I'm going to try and, you know, Stuart Lee's a great example of someone who had a very long career before he became, you know, Alan Bennett's favourite comedian. How jealous am I? <laughs> and the, uh, but, you know, those... Uh and, and I, I think that bit where sometimes you, you, you listen to a certain thing, and music, certainly, the songs I've heard, and I think, oh, that, and very often it's not the artist's fault. It's like whoever's around the artist saying, no, we need to produce it like this, and it's going to be this, and this will make it to number one. And then there's other people who have that very, very long journey, and you go, they, when they do hit that audience, that audience will never leave them now. Mm. That wasn't really a question, was it? So... Um, <laughs> Stuart Lee's book, How I Escaped My Certain Fate, had a massive effect on me as a performer. And I was brave enough to go and tell him after one of his shows once, which was a big deal because he's, he's yeah big influence on me in terms of fourth wall performance, leaving the stage, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, again, that's another book that, sh that shaped my mind and made me... And I could reflect on it. And he's, he wasn't saying musicians why don't you consider getting off the stage once in a while it wasn't anything like that he was just talking about his experience telling his story and the reasons he does the things he does and I reflected on it in my brain and then I did the things and it, it, it changed how I did everything really so yeah just I think it's good to have your brain shaped by long form interesting thought out things that is good if, in case you didn't know yeah. the um I was gonna this is something that when when you create something, and because we've talked a little bit about kind of, you know, that, that people who deliberately want to provoke and people who want a, a, a actually part of the, the upset is part of their whole kind of way that their marketing works. But there's, I think there's an interesting thing where sometimes you do something with good intentions and then when it does hit someone the wrong way. And I had this experience recently when I was touring with, with Brian Cox and we did like 77 dates. And only, it only happened on one occasion. There's a, there's a, the, the end of the show, which I can tell you because we, we don't, we're never going to do it again, but we ended on a poem, which I've, I've, I've performed many times. I, I would do a poem and then Brian would come on and kind of summarise the whole thing. And, and, and the poem was about the passing of time. And the poem was about uh, that sense for, for, for those of us with children or look after children, that moment as you watch them and you suddenly go, oh, they're getting, I'm sure you 
all getting to that point now where you go, oh man, that, that age now, everything's going to change and what will the adventures be? And I'll do, do the poem for you. It, it just, it, it's about the building a den with my son and about the time that we went back to the den and found out someone had cleared it away. And so I would go on and I would, I would just say, you know, and I watched my son sleeping. And as I, lo- I looked at him, I, th- I thought, you don't need a storyteller now. Your bedtime's almost autonomous, but still one snuggly hug for safety from the Sandman. Is today the day? Is this our final den? We dragged the sticks and we rolled the logs and made jokes about those passing walkers with those weird-shaped dogs. And you found our furniture, a worn and mossy tyre. And I warned you of all the dangers of that leaf-hidden, rusty, rusty barbed wire. And then, damp-bottomed, we sat and viewed our architectural feet. I phone-filmed your pride for the archives of things we've done, the woodland adventures of father and son. Some days, walking hand in hand, I secretly mourn for the days that are not yet gone. Those days that seem like a shepherd's sketch for an A.A. Milne where every beach is a post-war postcard. The blue, too blue, in my recall. Your freedom is necessity, but not yet. Not yet. Just, just, just wait a bit. Let's, let's pond dip for skaters with a net. Let's build a sofa train, a kick around, a Lego piece found by my bare foot. Let's read Peanuts at Dusk and Calvin and Hobbes. Let's dig and splash and play and mime laser deaths in outer space. Let's race. And then I'll let you go. And I'll kick those twigs alone. But not yet. Not yet. One more day. And I would read that, and then Brian would come out and talk about the fact that the very laws that mandate that there will be life in the universe are the very laws that mandate it will be finite, and that the universe will come to some form of end, even if it just, you know, the end might be an enormity, but with no activity and thus no time. And we only had this experience once, but we got someone who was furious. They were so angry about what they'd heard. And they, they had lost a child. And they said, you've not thought about this. That ending, I'm so angry. And, and I tried to have a, a dialogue with this person, but I realised that the dialogue was impossible because I, what they had gone through was something that was, was terrible. Nothing I could say would be able to repair that situation. But indeed, also the intention, whatever I say, this person will be unable to see the intention, or indeed know that there's, I'm not going to start saying about how many people I talked to beforehand about this, which I had done and all those things, because that means nothing to them. Now, that's, so I'm, I'm interested in knowing, so the reason I brought up this long story is just, how do we deal sometimes with the fact that we may well create a story with one intention, and when maybe even only one person finds something else in it, something damaging? I feel a responsibility to some extent, because I write songs about my feelings about death, fear of death, um, actual death. Uh, it's not all death. There's some death. Um, <laughs> so definitely some death. And heartbreak and things like that. But, but the reactions I get from people... And, and to be honest, I, I, I honestly wrote those songs going, well, OK, I feel this thing. Uh, these are the honest lyrics. This is me playing the guitar. Um, and then, I, and I, then it's only really when I start singing them to people, and they're probably as far away from me as you are, in, in a room about this size, perhaps maybe bigger sometimes... And I'm singing things like, there's a song called Dear Heart, I wrote, and it's about my, my actual heart, and I want to thank it um, for keeping beating, so keeping me alive, despite all the stupid mistakes I've made, and it's been broken, and all these things. And then at the end, I'm just going, um, uh, uh, basically, for as, for as long as I get to, till my fingers are turning blue, I will always care for you, thank you. And I sang that to people, and I was like, this is dark. This is definitely very viscerally about definite death. And I'm singing it to people who have obviously, we've all experienced it in, in, in various ways. Loved ones going, you know, people in hospitals. It's, it's awful and sad. And I, don't, I, I didn't want to bring that up for people in a way that would make it really awful. And they go home going, well, I thought I was just going out to see some fun ditties tonight. And now I feel terrible. But because I think of the, the love and the care I put into the songs, the feeling is never now we're all broken into pieces and you've ruined our lives. It's, it's okay, you feel that too. So I think I've, I've been perhaps fortunate in, this, in, in, in that way. But I do, I do think about it more now because <laughs> I'm really aware now. I think it's part of the contract that we have with a piece of art that we, we respect its honesty. I thought your poem was great. And I think the, the people who were upset by it you know, perhaps at least respected that you'd done it for the right artistic reasons and, and with honesty. And this, is, this came up for me in 
putting others together. Um, because one of the issues that we face about honesty is about the, the, the spectre, if you like, of what's become known as cultural appropriation. So the, the argument here is, OK, it's all very well for writers to project themselves into other points of view and show us other worlds and other lives. But when does that become exploitative? It becomes exploitative, arguably, when a more privileged group of people are uh, exploiting the experience of a, of a less privileged group of people. So that's a big debate that's been going on in about, about how we should use other cultures and other ways of expression um, in, in, in art. And there's no easy answer to it. But all I would say is that the, all the writers I spoke to about this issue said writers do, they have a responsibility to, to cross that boundary and take us across that boundary into other minds as long as they do it with respect. And a word that often comes up is humility. To efface yourself as a writer, to lose your own perspective so that you can enter honestly that other point of view. And then you will, you will undoubtedly upset some people. You know, if I wrote a, a character in a novel who had autism, I'd probably upset people who think, you know, people with autism should write about autism. But, you know, I would do it. If I did it, I would do it on the basis of doing as much research as I possibly could and on the basis, I hope, of respect and humility. Yeah, I remember having the moment where someone who wrote something which I thought was slightly grotesque, and I said to them, would you like to meet some of the people that you've kind of... And, and he went, no, I haven't got time for that. And I think that's the bit where you go, that, that, that dismissive nature, which is, this works for my story and I don't care. Well, it's and like if I sang those songs and then I was, had no interest in talking to people afterwards. So we, talk, we were talking about in the car. Mm. We've had a lot of conversations in the car. It's been great. Um, about how I'm so honest in these songs and then I, the, one of the reactions to that is people coming and telling me their honest things afterwards. And if I just, if I just went, are you buying something or not? Yeah. And then left the room. That would just ugh, horrible. I would never do that. Boring. <laughs> Whatever you're telling me, there's no song in it. Thank you. Exactly. Next anecdote. Very useful. That's almost an iambic pentameter already. I'm making notes. <laughs> I'm making notes. But that's the thing. I'm I'm in this to have human connection with people, to share my story, and to hear other people's stories, and to level with people because we're all people. And there's no like I'm on the stage and you're not, so you're not interesting. They're probably way more interested than me. I mostly sit in cars and carry things in and out of venues. Um, I wouldn't say I'm the most interesting person. You've never in the written room. a song about that, have I you? Should. That's, uh, I should. Really should. Carrying things in and out of venues. <laughs> sciatica, sciatica, sciatica. <laughs> you can use that if you like. Um, yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> you'll hear me singing it all the way to our next gig in Newcastle. Yes. It's in my head now. Um, the, uh, you're going to sing a song at the end. Okay. Uh, we're, we're near the end now, so I wanted to ask you to, about. We, we haven't talked too much about other books as well. Again, in your childhood, in, in terms of your development, do you remember the, fir the first books or, or any pieces of art where you thought, "Oh man, this is really," you know, the, you know, there are. I mean, for me, it probably was something like Doctor Who in the Genesis of the Daleks, or, it would have been, or in fact, it was Alan Frank's book of horror movies. That was actually the book that I kept going back to as a kid when I'd go into my room and yet look at images of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in the creeping flesh. Yeah, for some reason that was, you know, and I, I, I was mentioning before we started doing this, you know, I just did a horror movie festival in Aberystwyth and, you know, seeing all the people who were at that festival, I know, you know, I used to have this, well, I don't used to, I still use it sometimes, but sometimes I look at the audience I play to and I say one of the things that I know is common amongst all the people that I play to is very few of them have fond memories of being picked first for games. And so, you know, that, that yeah. moment of... Uh, and from that point onwards, we kind of go... And, and you know, the, the, the horror movie festival was filled with exactly the kind of people I thought it would be, and other people you wouldn't expect, but overall, they were people who were slightly on the margins, and the thing that worked for them was watching Amicus portmanteau movies or whatever it might be. So there's so many different things that might give us, you know, that, that little bit of hope, and that, you know... And I wondered what, what it was for you. Well, I'd say Watership Down opened up the world of rabbits to me. And, and, and that's a, you know, it did. I wow, loved, what I a dark, that that's such a dark book though, isn't it? I, yeah, it is. So sad. Is. And I loved it as a kid, but I think it's, this theme is still resonating. You know, it's like, how is it possible for a human writer to make you feel like a rabbit, to mm. live the life of a rabbit? And, it, you know, to a certain extent, they are just people with, with fluffy costumes on. But they are, but you know, the, the sort of thought world of the rabbit and what matters to a rabbit and so on, it's extraordinary. You know, I still, you know, I, I'm, I'm amazed that we have this ability to do this. And I start the, 
um, the introduction to, to others, where I think about, you know, Colson Whitehead writing about a slave catcher. He brings a lot to life this awful, despicable human being in his, in his book, The Underground Railroad. And I'm thinking, you know, why, how is it even possible for you to put me into the mindset of this mm. horrible, horrible person who catches runaway slaves for a living? In a way, that was the starting point for thinking about the book and thinking, you know, what is this trick that literature does and how do we how do, we do it? How is it technically achieved and what, it did, what does it do to us, for us as readers? That is an interesting... That, that bit where... Though, because so much again is that kind of binary thing of good or evil. There's that beautiful bit in the road, isn't there, where uh, in Cormac McCarthy's book, where you know the kid asks his, his dad if it is his dad. You know, uh, are, are we still, you know, are we the goodies? Are we, are we the, you know, are we, are we still the good guys? Yeah, that's and that's, that's you know, literature can turn us upside down morally in that sense. It can put us into the mind of a paedophile, of a murderer, into the worst people we could possibly imagine, and it can put us right there. And you're in that perspective, thank you very much. You better get used to it, because this is what this is the contract that literature makes with you, and that's why we get so much out of it, I think, because of the way it can turn us upside down in, in a moral sense. I had that with... I read the book about um, Raoul Moat, which uh, it's Andrew Hankinson, I think, is... Uh, I hope I've, I've said... And uh, it's a fascinating book where he basically takes lots of different bits of stuff that was left behind, of answer machine messages, of things that he wrote down, and it takes you just into the mind from that point of realising that he was going to go and, 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 and shoot someone and then going into the hills and all that. And as you're in his mind... And, and you do find... He, he doesn't... You know, it's not one where you find yourself siding with him or empathy. There are times where you go, ah, oh, and then you kind of see that... The, this was a mind that had gone to a very unpleasant place of self-justification. And, uh, and I found that every 60 pages, I'd have to go, oh, I need to leave that mind for a while now. I've spent too long in, in the mind, the way that this has been rendered the, the mind of Raoul Moat. I need to stop it for a little bit because it was so powerfully done, so, so brilliantly um, put together. Um, talking of things that are brilliantly put together, uh, Laura, you brilliantly put together songs, don't you? What an amazing segue. Um, the, um, we'll end uh, on... Which one are you going to do? I'm going to do Dear Heart, that one about death that you like so much. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for coming along. And uh, so um, that was uh, not Josie, but Robin's uh, book shambles. And I really, I, I, I cannot recommend others enough. I just, I keep banging on about it because it really was a, a book which I think that, as you said, the timing is so important. The story, Selena Godden's story about her sister is just magnificent. And, and it is, and it is, it's that thing where you don't want to read the, you just read one story and then you go, I'm just going to sit with that story for a little bit now. And it kind of hangs around you and it's and it's so great so i highly recommend that uh for people listening uh at home or in a car or on some kind of running machine to this and uh then uh we've we've got a few things coming up with book shambles where josie and i will be doing a thing at the albert hall called sea shambles with various special guests including lem cisse and and uh and and various others uh charles that is go, go and look at charles's other work as well there's there's some fantastic the book you wrote the voices within um, is fantastic. Anyway, so um, <laughs> you are going to sing. Uh, 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 so thank you very much. She makes war. Go also keep up to date with all of the stuff. As as, as Laura mentioned, she makes war is going to become a. She's going to reincarnate in uh, Time Lord fashion as something new. And uh, so go and check her website, and you'll find out all of the different news about that. So um, please sing a song for right us. Then. That's a segue. That's a segue. Right. Okay. This is called Dear Heart.
down and so will I At least I have time to apologize Dear I was wrong Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Patreon, uh, the website, and also the people who support us on there, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Don't forget to check out the online shop. Uh, Some new stuff going up there this week, cosmicshambles.com slash shop. Check out Josie's website for her tour dates. Check out Laura's website uh, for her upcoming projects and uh, jump onto Hive or go to your local bookshop to pick up a copy of Others. Uh, Genuinely a fantastic book. Uh, Do check that out from Charles and a multitude of wonderful writers. Have a great week. Be good to each other and we will be back next Thursday. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.